reading from 2 Kings chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Joram son of Ahab became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah, and he reigned for 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people are as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the, lands of, on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now, bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha, and he said, This is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, block up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now, all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them, so every man, young and old, who could bear arms, was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water, to the Moabites across the way, the water looked red, like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, 
the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kir Haraseth was left with its stones in place, but men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. This is God's word. Right, thank you for reading. Uh, good morning. My name's Matt Fuller, if we've uh, not met. Hear a reading such as that and wonder what is going on there. Well, that was indeed my first experience uh, upon uh, reading 2 Kings 3. I think I've worked out why it's there. But if you are joining us, we're just spending a few weeks in uh, chapters 1 to 8 of uh, the book of 2 Kings, the cycle of Elisha, uh, the prophet. And um, he is the, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. That's his nickname. And uh, the Lord has recorded this for us. And I think we'll need his help to uh, apply it rightly. So let me pray as we begin. Our great God and Father, in your wisdom, you record for us strange stories from the history of your people, but they're vivid, and we pray that uh, as we uh, read through this, that you will be our teacher, your spirit will be at work, giving us discernment and understanding, and hearts that want to respond rightly to you. Father, that is your work. Please be at it amongst us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I've been interviewing the week with uh, Moen Ali, uh, the uh, England cricketer, uh, all-rounder, and um, he comes across as a lovely bloke, okay? uh, thoughtful and uh, honest and reflective, uh, a lovely bloke, and he's sort of quite prominent because uh, he's very uh, obviously a Muslim uh, and has taken some, a little bit of stick for that, uh, so particularly from Australian cricketers, so it emerges uh, uh, this week. But it was an interesting article with him. He spoke of the difference that his faith made to him. He said, look, that's the most important thing in my life. Then family uh, and cricket comes after that. And he said, look, I, I believe that God has a plan for all of my life. And, and uh, the interviewer was Mike Atherton, uh, well-respected journalist. He just, in a little aside, made a comment. Oh, it's evident that for, for, for Moen, his faith is really significant for him. Unlike most sportsmen who claim to have faith, and it's just a little sort of psychological boost to them. It's just a throwaway line in the piece. But that was that journalist's experience. Although loads of sportsmen claim to have faith, and they think it helps them a little bit. Uh, but this guy, you know, it's a bit different. At that point, you think, well, what do you mean by faith? It is a pretty sort of broadly used word, I think. He's got a faith. There is people of faith. But what does it mean? You start to wonder, is it, has it become sort of so familiar as a sort of word that you, it's almost useless? You're better off finding a new word. Well, apart from the Bible uses it quite a lot. It'd be quite hard to go through the Bible without the word faith. But um, trust? 
dependence, reliance. Those would be good words, perhaps. Because here in 2 Kings and chapter 3, lots of people have faith. They have a sort of religion or, or spirituality to them. Lots of people here have faith. But it's a long way away from a biblical trust or dependence or reliance upon the Lord. And so actually, I think it's a very helpful passage to pull apart some wrong ideas about the nature of faith. And in very simple terms, I think you'll see it's faith is not, uh, it's not something we do. But faith is just depending upon collapsing upon a very generous God. Okay, it's not primarily something we do, but it is resting upon a very generous, very gracious God. Now, uh, if you are joining us uh, as we look at Two Kings, Two Kings is a pretty unedifying book, uh, if the truth be told. It, it, it's not the one you read and go, oh, yeah, great, um, because it's a record of, uh, well, it's a history book. And so you're not meant to copy everything that takes place in here any more than you would copy the behavior of William the Conqueror in 1066. It's just a record of what took place. And it was written up about 300 years after the events of uh, 2 Kings chapter 3. It's written up in about 550-ish, something like that. Uh, God's people have lost everything. God's people, Israel, they've been driven out of the promised land. They're in exile. And the book of 1 and 2 Kings is written essentially to say, well, what went wrong? God had given you all these wonderful blessings, and now you've lost them all. What went wrong? And so when we read through this book, we're basically looking at examples of things that went wrong most of the time. And God has recorded 2 Kings 3 broadly to say, look, here are my people and what they did in the past. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now, to orientate ourselves a little bit more in history, here's a family tree. It's a, a pretty rough and ready family tree, and uh, any accidental likeness to anyone in the building is completely, you know, so don't, don't think, oh, you know, it's not, none of that. Uh, it's just um, uh, free images uh, of uh, the, uh, the net. But uh, the, key, the key things, I guess, to, to try and orientate ourselves, there was one nation, the nation of Israel, God's promised people, so the great king David, uh, his son Solomon, uh, you can see the likeness there. They just went for slightly different facial hair um, uh, at the top there. But the kingdom then split in about 930, 931 BC. So you get the north, the ten tribes of Israel, and the south, the two tribes of Judah. Uh, the, the north is led by Jeroboam, uh, and they're the breakaway. Uh, they're the naughtiest of the people, if you will. So as soon as Jeroboam is broken away, the ten tribes, it's chaos. It's chaos in Israel. There's coups, there's military uh, coups. Um, and so you get, to, there's no clear line of succession. The, 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 the two tribes of Judah under Rehoboam, that is still the promised line. So God said there will always be a king descended from David on the throne. And so the line runs father to son, father to son. So when you think, when the kingdom splits, Judah is better. Whereas uh, over here, uh, Israel is disastrous. Uh, king Ahab, um, we looked at him one kings about 18 months ago or so. He is the worst king Israel ever has. One king 16 will tell you that. He's the worst king ever before and ever since. No one's as bad as Ahab. He's absolutely appalling. Um, 
Uh, he has a son, Jehoaz. He dies after two years on the throne. So Joram has just come to the throne. Okay? Joram is the son of Ahab, the younger son. His older brother had reigned for about two years. Okay? That's where we're at in history. And where are we? We're about 850 BC now. The names get a little bit confusing, but the key ones for us today, Joram, very bad. Jehoshaphat, can we just make a deal on him? Uh, he's a bit long as a name. I'm going to call him Japhat. Okay. Can you live with that? Because otherwise I'll start stumbling. And also I think Japhat, Joram, they sound very different, so we won't get confused. Can we run with that? It was either that or Fatty. Fatty seemed a bit inappropriate. So I'm going to go for Japhat. Right. Can we deal with that? Okay. Joram, Jehoshaphat, Japhat, they're the key ones. That's where we're at in history. Okay, let's pick it up. Chapter 3, verse 1. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria, that's the northern ten tribes, uh, Israel, in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, Japhat, king of Judah. Joram reigned for 12 years. Here's the summary. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. So that's Joram. And if you met him, he'd say, um, look, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as my dad. Uh, that's about all you get from him. But I am as bad as Jeroboam, the first terrible king. So it's a little bit like, I don't know, you might bump into as you, as you do on your travels, uh, you bump into Robert Mugabe, and you say, Bob, you've not lived a very good life, have you? And he might say to you, well, I was a brutal, I have been a brutal dictator. My regime has been despicable. The crimes I've committed are horrific, but I was not as bad as Hitler. At which point you say, well, that's not very impressive. We can all play that game and find someone worse than us. You're not as bad as your dad, Joram, but you're still a terrible king. Now, the presenting issue that comes up is uh, uh, Moab, another kingdom nearby, has a rebellion. They pay a lot of money to, uh, to uh, Israel, and so uh, the king of Moab gets a bit fed up with that. Verse 4, Misha, king of Moab, he'd raised all this money. But after King Ahab died, well, it was a period of, you know, the, 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 the impressive king, wicked though he was, good military king, he's died, so there's a rebellion. And then we pick up our story. I really want to look at it in this way. I want to look at how these three different kings behave. Joram, Japhat, Jehoshaphat, and Mesha. Because all of them have faith. But none of it's particularly good. We'll look at how the three kings behave and contrast it with reliance or trust upon the Lord. Okay, so we're going to look at drifting faith of Jehoshaphat, desperate faith of Joram, pagan faith of Mesha, but in the middle the surprising grace of the Lord. Right? Drifting faith, desperate faith, pagan faith, but happily in the middle, there's the surprising grace of the Lord. Let's look at them. First then, uh, the drifting faith of Jehoshaphat. Uh, pick it up at um, verse 6. There's been a rebellion. Well, verse 5. After King Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram of Israel set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go up with me to fight against Moab? I'll go with you, Jehoshaphat replied. I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses as your horses. 
By what route shall we attack? He asked. Through the desert of Edom, uh, Joram replied or answered. And you read that and think, well, okay, well, so what? But the author, he's given us a deliberate deja vu, if we're careful readers. If you just turn back a few pages to 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22, it's two years earlier. Ahab is king of Israel. And the writer has used precisely the same language. Let me just pick it up from uh, chapter 22. I'll read a few verses. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel, but in the third year, Joshua, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel said to his officials, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belonged to us, and yet we're doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? Question from the king of Israel. He asked Jehoshaphat, will you go up with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Listen carefully to the reply. Japhat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, first, seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, but the Lord will give it to the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, yes, there is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good against me, but always bad. He's Micaiah, the son of Imla, and off they go and they uh, speak to Micaiah. But do you see, king of Israel says to Jehoshaphat, Ahab, and Joram two years later, Will you go and fight with me? Jehoshaphat gives precisely the same answer. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. 1 Kings 22, Jehoshaphat says, but we should ask the Lord, shouldn't we? We've got to ask the Lord. And they get one answer and says, can we just ask the Lord again? Is there a, you know, is there a sort of well-known prophet of God? Yeah, Micaiah. Here, in our passage today, 2 Kings 3, yeah, yeah, okay, I am as you are. My horses as you are. My, my, my people are your people. Let's go. What tactics? Two years earlier, let's ask the Lord. Now, right, let's crack on. And the author of 1 and 2 Kings is saying, do you see, I'm going to use precisely the same language, you, you mentally go, I've heard this before, there's a deja vu here. Uh, let's compare these two stories. And so the question we're meant to ask when we read 2 Kings 3 is, Jehoshaphat, why don't you ask the Lord anymore? You used to. Ask the Lord, and now you've stopped. Why do you no longer rely upon him, but just go for tactics? Now, we're not told explicitly, to be honest. There's two obvious things I, I think you can glean from reading the whole story. Uh, the one, if you, if you read earlier, Jehoshaphat has married his son to Joram's sister. So they're very tightly related. You know, so when Joram comes along and says, should we go and fight together? Because, look, you know, we, we shared the costs of a wedding. You and I, we've got drunk together a few nights. We spend Christmas together. That's a, an acronym, obviously. Uh, we, you know, spend Christmas together. You know, we saw the New Year's in. We did Old Lang's Line together. And, uh, you know, we, we go out for a beer every so often. You and I, we're mates. So relationally, it's a bit awkward to say no to Joram. I don't know. 
can sort of know that sentiment sometimes. You, you, you gather at a family gathering, and you may be, if you're a Christian, you, you're the only one there. And you think, I should probably, should we give thanks for the food? Or maybe it's awkward. And, you know, there's that sort of semblance of it going on. I don't want to be the pious one here. Perhaps there's something of that. I guess the other little observation, time has passed. The last time JFAT was asked, do you want to go to war? They went to war and, and he survived. And yeah, yeah, we can go to war again. I'm, I'm good at that. Did that last time and it, and, and it worked out. And so rather than being the king who says, we must pray and ask the Lord what to do, he now says, yeah, yeah we can do this. I've done this before. Now, that, I think, is a pretty familiar sentiment. So you start a new job, and it's a step up. Maybe you feel slightly exposed going in. And so you start your new job and say, Lord, help me in my new job, and, and help me to do it well, and, and I pray I get on well with my colleagues, and, and, and help me to be known as a Christian and, and perhaps to witness for you. And, and you, you pray because you're a bit nervous. And then uh, a year later, you never pray about work anymore. Not if it's going well, you just take it for granted because you're quite good at that. Or you become a parent for the first time and you get your child home and you go, Lord, what do we do? Lord, help. You know, oh, what does that cry mean? And you're praying all the time because you're awake all the time. Um, you can't get asleep, so you might as well pray. You know, and you're just desperate. And then after a while, well, you got this done. It's fine. You don't really pray about bringing up children. You just do it and get on for it. We can all, any different arena, we can drift into that sort of pattern. There's Jehoshaphat. To, he's just drifted. He used to rely upon the Lord a lot more. Now, well, I'm competent. I've got this king thing off. I'm quite good at it. Uh, you know, I'm pretty good in a chariot. And uh, my tactics are good on the battlefield. I'm your man. He's just drifted. No longer reliance. Just a sort of functional faith. But it doesn't go so well. So uh, they concoct this plan, verse 8. By what route should we attack through the desert of Edom? Quick map, uh, you get that. Have you got that? Quick, quick little map. So rather than going, uh, there they are in Israel. Can you see? Um, uh, I guess the most direct route is you cross the, the Jordan River above Jericho, and then you go into Edom. But they come all the way down through Judah, uh, uh, Edom, and then they're going to attack from the south. Because if you've rebelled, if you're Moab and have rebelled against Israel, you're expecting the attack to come from the north. They're going to come from the south. Okay, that's what's going on. So they take the long route round. The only problem is it's a desert. And so verse 9. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for them or for the animals with them. And you think, oh, Jehoshaphat, you could have avoided this problem if you'd asked the Lord. But you drifted. We'll come back to him. And he's the best of the kings. But the drifting faith of Jehoshaphat. He's a believer though. His faith has drifted. More succinctly, you've got the desperate faith of uh, Joram. Verses 10 to 13. So they're in trouble. Uh, desperate faith of Joram. They're in trouble. Uh, no water for the army. No water for the troops. And so we pick it up. Verse 10. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. I, I take it probably the exclamation was a little bit stronger than that and had a few little asterisks in it. What the is going on? What the, uh, we're in trouble. What, says the uh, king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us, deliver us into the hands of Moab? 
Well, that's a bit of a surprise, Joram. You're invoking the name of the Lord. But you're not a follower of the Lord. You've been following after other gods all your life. And now you're blaming God for something going wrong. Well, that's a little bit of a surprise. Still, it, it, it prods Joshaphat's memory. So verse 11, oh, yeah. Um, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Oh, we should have asked God, shouldn't we? That's what I did last time. That's what you're meant to do. Uh, should we do that? An officer says to him, well, yeah, there's Elisha, son of Shaphat. He's here. He used to be uh, Elijah's servant. Jehoshaphat said, well, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So along comes Elisha, who is our sort of chief protagonist in, in these sort of two kings, one to eight. He's, he's the prophet of the Lord. He's, he's God's mouthpiece. He speaks for the Lord. What, what, he, you, know, you can take what he says as, as positive. Apart from here, he's not super flattering. So uh, these kings, they go to him. And verse 13, Elisha said to the king of Israel, Lord, you want to involve me? Go to your God. Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. You know, you and your family, you've, you've chased after Baal for, for generations. You go and ask them. They're your gods. What do you want with me? You've never been interested in me. All you've tried to do is kill me and uh, Elijah. So, uh, on your bike, mate. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Um, no, look, I'm in, a, I'm, in a, I'm in a bind, Elijah. I'm pretty desperate right now. So I'll try anything. What about the Lord? Can, can he help? Look, I know I, 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 I'm not a follower of the Lord. I, I don't pray to the Lord. I, I don't never listen to him. I, I have nothing to do with him. But right now I'm in a fix, and so I'll try anything. Now, in the 21st century, that sort of faith is still pretty common, I'd suggest. I'm not a Christian. I'm not sure there's God. But right now, I'm in a complete fix, and so I'll try anything. Uh, God, I'm going to pray to you. I don't know how this works. Is this how it works? Do I just sort of shout into the air? Uh, I've never bothered you before. Um, I don't know what I'm doing right now, but everything else has failed, and I can't sort the problem out myself. Help? Please? That's sort of what you've got here. Now, the Lord may be kind, and he may answer prayer of someone who's not a believer, not a follower of Jesus. He might. But this is pretty desperate stuff. And it's certainly not a biblical faith. It's not dependence, reliance, trust. It's not that. It's anything will do. I'll give anything a go if things are bad enough. That's John. So you've got the drifting faith of Jehoshaphat, the desperate faith of Joram, and yet it is greeted with the surprising grace of the Lord. In verses uh, really 14 to 25. And of course, this is the bulk of the story, not upon what the kings do, but upon how the Lord response. Two surprises. Let me suggest there, there are two surprises here in the surprising grace of the Lord. The first is that Elisha says, yeah, God will listen to you, Joram. 
not because of you, but because of Jehoshaphat. Verse 14, Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But I might now. Now look, Jehoshaphat's not great, Japhat's not great, but he is a believer. More importantly, he is the descendant of David. And the Lord had said, there will always be a descendant of David upon the throne, ruling over God's people. That is my promise to you. So Elisha is saying, oh look, Joram, I couldn't be less interested in you, but I will listen to you because of the descendant of David. Because of him, I'll pay you some attention. That's the first surprise that Joram has even listened to. The second one is that the Lord promises more than actually is asked for or expected. Verse um, uh, 15, 16, 17. But now, says uh, Elisha, uh, bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came in upon Elisha, and he said, well, this is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says, you'll neither see wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. Okay, you need water. I will provide you with the water you need. It'll be miraculous. It'll, it'll come, and you won't know where it's come from, but I'll give you the water you need. But not only that, verse 18, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He'll also deliver Moab into your hands. Verse 18, yeah, of course I'll give you a water, but, but that's light work. That's easy peasy. That is no problem at all. And um, I'm going to be generous to you. Look, you will absolutely trounce Moab. Uh, and it'll all be my hand that does it. I'm going to give you much more than you asked for, even. Because that's the sort of God that I am. And so you, you get uh, uh, the, the promise of the Moab will be trounced, verse 19. You'll overthrow every fortified city, every major town. You'll cut down every good tree, block up all the springs, ruin every good field with stone. I mean, you're going to really uh, uh, trounce them completely. And then you get a very long description of that happening. Verse 20, water comes. Then verses 21 to 23, the Moabites, they, they, they see the sun on the water. Goodness knows how this works. But they think, oh, you know, all these three kings, Israel and Judah and Edom, they've, they've slaughtered themselves. Brilliant. We can just wander into their camp and nickel their kit. Um, we won't even have to fight for it. So they wander in. Verse 24, they're completely unprepared to fight. Probably not strapped on their, uh, their armor or their shields or whatever it may be. Verse 24, when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up, fought them until they fled. And then you get the description. There's fulfillment. They do destroy every city, cut everything down, etc., etc. But the point here is, well, look, the kings, Jehoshaphat, he gets about three verses. Joram gets about three verses. At the end, Misha gets two verses. But really, everything that's useful that takes place here is the Lord's work. Two surprises. He answers Joram because of the Davidic king, and he's very generous. Now, those two things are still true for you and me. So the Lord listens to us because of Jesus, because he is the final king descended from David, who sits on the throne of David, the New Testament will tell us, forever. 
So you and I could say, well, God will listen to me. I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. Well, Joram could say that. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than my dad. Anyone can say that. Lovely Moen Ali, who does come across as a very nice bloke, could say in his piece, look, I I hope my behavior is such that Allah listens to me. That's how most of us think. I'm good enough for God to listen to me. And yet the Bible and the Lord will say no. No, God will not listen to any of you, because none of you, nor me, can do enough for God to listen to us. But he will do because of Jesus. Here we are, but if if you belong to Jesus, if you belong to the King, then the Lord will listen to you, because you're his. And the Lord will say, yeah, King Jesus, he is wonderful, he is perfect, Uh, He is well worthy of being listened to. And if you belong to him, of course. If you trust in him, of course. Then I'll listen to you as well. Let me try and put it this way. Uh, This is a while ago, a year or so ago, a bit more. um, uh, I went to visit my mother, uh, where she lives in Essex. And uh, our old car, it was making a funny old noise. The sort of noise you think, I know nothing. Uh, I don't know that noise. And uh, there was a garage just outside uh, my mum's village, which my dad always said was fantastic. Always go there. Drive miles to go there. It's the best garage. They know everything and they charge. They don't uh, rip you off. So I pulled into the garage and said, oh, look, my car's making a funny noise. He said, oh, I'm sorry, mate. You're absolutely chock-a-block. There's just no way I can look at your car today. No chance. Uh, he said, tomorrow, maybe. I said, oh, I, I live in London, so I, I won't be here tomorrow. He said, well, to be honest, if you're not a local, I'm not that interested because we like to, you know, I like to keep it sort of clear on tell, you know, and serve the locality. So sorry about that, but not today and not if you're a Londoner. Um, was, uh, was, you kind of think, okay, I, I sort of get that. I said, oh, well, um, not to worry. Uh, it's just you know, my dad always said, you guys were fantastic. It always bring a car here. I said, all right. Who's your dad? John Fuller. Ah, you're John Fuller's boy. He was a lovely man. Let me have a look at your car. And um, he went, did. He did. My dad's dead, but he remembers him. And, you know, oh, yeah, for the sake of your dad. On my own, no chance. Uh, Today, you haven't got to look in. You're a Londoner, get lost. Uh, No chance. Belonging to John Fuller, yeah, well, of course I'll listen to you. I'll do it now because of him, and for you and for me, uh, God, will you listen to me? No. Why would I do that? Why would I do that when you, you barely acknowledge me? You so often reject me. But, but Lord, I, I belong to Jesus. I, I know I've done wrong, but I've trusted in him. Oh, you belong to Jesus? Well, you can ask me anything you want. I'll give you much more than you ask for when you belong to Jesus. That's what's going on here. At the moment, we're preaching through uh, Ephesians chapter 1 in the evening. We take about a month just to get through one chapter there, so be thankful. Because um, uh, yeah, you don't want a month in this chapter. But uh, one, uh, Ephesians 1 is a wonderful chapter. But the, it's just so striking. You read through Ephesians 1, and the language is God gives every spiritual blessing. He lavishes his grace upon us. He, it is his good pleasure and purpose to pour out blessings upon his people. He's a God who loves to give. If you belong to Jesus Christ and you say, Lord, you know, I have no right to ask you this. He says, no, of course you don't. 
You belong to Jesus. Well, let me lavish answers upon your prayer. Let me give you far more than you deserve if you belong to him. We might say, can you forgive me, Lord? And, and uh, forgive me. I don't want to be, as he said, disrespectful. But the Lord says, forgive you. If you belong to Jesus, that's light work. I'll do more than forgive you. I'll make you my child. I'll adopt you. I'll give you every spiritual blessing. I'll give you an inheritance. You can rule over the new creation if you belong to him. Two extraordinary surprises. One, that God would listen to us through Jesus. But two, that when he does, he pours out more than we ask for. There's surprising grace to the undeserving. But then very briefly, you get the pagan faith of Mesha, which is a bit of a blow and a strange place to end. Very briefly, uh, verse 26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. It's the last hurrah, uh, but that doesn't work. And so his last desperate act, verse 27, then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against or upon Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. Okay, well this is obviously a despicable act. Fury against or upon Israel. This word fury, it's only used of humans in one and two kings. So either it is... Uh, the Moabites are inspired by this sacrifice and drive out the Israelites. Impossible. I think more likely is uh, the Israelites, that they see this and fury comes upon them. They're just so appalled. Just, we, just, we are done. We're just walking away from these despicable people. I just, we just can't be anywhere near this, I think is probably what's taking place. The Moabites, they had their pagan god, Chemosh, and obviously, Misha thinks, if I can bribe my god, Chemosh, to help us if I sacrifice something to him. Now, that is pagan faith. Obviously wicked here. But that, again, is pretty common throughout history. You get milder forms. The presenting issue in the Reformation of the 16th century is... Uh, the Roman Catholic Church saying, if you give money to Rome, then God will let you off time in purgatory. Because, what? You can bribe the Lord to let you out of purgatory. None of these things are true. None of them exist. But, but that's the logic. What the Lord is like a corrupt traffic cop. You just give him a bit of money and he lets you off. Is, is that how it works? That sort of bribery. And that's the presenting issue that causes the Reformation. And Martin Luther and others say, this is certainly not what God is like. Or, or much milder, kitchen gods in, in traditional Chinese religion. You, you offer your little sweets to your kitchen gods, uh, and then the kitchen gods speak well of you in heaven. You, you, you bribe them by making them some coconut ice or, or whatever it is, or a bun. You bribe, you offer something to bribe the gods. It's pagan faith desperate. It's a million miles away from the Bible. Because faith is not primarily what we do. 
but it is saying, Lord, there's, there's no way I can do anything to make you listen to me. But I trust that, that Jesus has lived a perfect life. I belong to him. I, I, I trust him. So I know that you'll listen to me because of him, not because of me, because of him. And I trust that if you're listening to me because of him, you're very generous. And I trust you in that. And I depend upon you in that. Day by day, I trust that Jesus has died for all I've done wrong. He's given me his perfection. And you listen to me. You love me. You're very kind and generous to me. That's faith. Not what we do. Not a desperate faith only in dire circumstances do we bother to pray. Although the Lord may be kind and even answer that. Certainly not a pagan faith. You cannot bribe him to make him listen to you. Be wary if you're a believer of this sort of drifting faith. But day by day saying, I don't trust my own abilities. I don't trust my own behavior to make you listen. My only hope is Jesus, and you're very generous. You lavish things upon your people. I rely upon that. That is faith, as the Bible speaks of it. False faith of many, but the surprising grace of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer together. Great God and Father, we thank you and we praise you that faith is not primarily something we do. It is reliance, dependence, collapsing, rolling ourselves upon you and saying, you, we need you. We'll not do this on our own. We can't bribe you to be on our side. We are utterly dependent upon you being generous and kind and listening to us because of Jesus, not because of us. And being giving us more than we deserve because of Jesus, not because of us. Father, would we trust you, the very generous, wonderfully gracious, utterly trustworthy God, not ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.